I got really confused this week looking at Twitter because there was like Allison Roman and then like um, Ronan Farrow. And then it was like, everyone's mad at Joe Rogan. I, I just completely lost track of time and space. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Joe Rogan because- He's uh, coming on the podcast. I haven't week. told you guys yet, but we actually also got a $100 million deal on <laughs> Spotify to sign with them exclusively. So um, the check, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll divvy up the cash later, but- Well, Sam- um, That's not- really exciting for us. Not to not to cause dramatics in interpod dramatics, but my boyfriend Lloyd Suitman is is Uh-oh. not agreeing to uh, me taking this deal. So oh um, unfortunately, you guys are going to be hosting. Call me, call me lunchy all alone. No, and I are going to take our combined fifteen million Instagram followers and um, go secure the bag elsewhere. So. You and Suitman can do whatever you want. I was watching this like old clip of the guy from Barstool Sports, Dave Portnoy, like on on the ESPN like expose, and he was like uh, talking about how he gets his haters' names printed on a bottles of champagne, and whenever they fail, he pops a bottle of champagne and like drinks it. What? <laughs> and uh, that's like actually the- really cool. <laughs> the, the the host of the segment was like, isn't there something kind of sick about that? Which I thought was kind of an amazing reaction. Like, that's so <laughs> twisted. Should we start actually taping the podcast? <laughs> Yay. This is episode uh, 1,997. What episode 95. is this? It is 95? Windows 95. Evan Kenori's texting me right now um, because he's trying to figure out how technology works. Um, Evan's going to be joining us on corporate lunch today and not a lot of people know, but he's a, um, you know, he doesn't know how to use technology. He's a very old timey guy and he, he, he does, he makes clothes with hammers and um, like old timey tools. So yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to coach him through some IT here. His entire home is lit by candlelight. Although he does have one gas lamp, and yeah. he lives in a like a big old like lighthouse, and he wears the head to toe like yellow rubber <laughs> fisherman's outfit with the lantern. Uh, episode ninety five of Corporate Lunch. This is, I mean, this is going to be the best. This is going to be the episode they talk about five hundred years from now, a thousand years from now. This is going to be an episode wow. that finally gets us canceled. <laughs> or it gets us the $100 million, um, what, what we call the Joe Rogan special with Spotify. So, I mean, we're something amazing, something remarkable is going to happen here on episode 95 of Corporate Lunch, GQ Styles podcast about clothes. Uh, the, all, the only, the customer service that you didn't need. The customer. We, we took a week off just to prepare for this episode. So it's really <laughs> Uh, it's really going, going to be a, a doozy. You know, it's Noah, Sam, and Rachel here, your hosts, and then Evan. Evan Kenori is going to call in from San Francisco soon and tell us about uh, his new collaboration with Target. Do you remember Target collaborations used to be like fucking lit. mayhem? They were lit. People would lose their minds. Tom Brown did one. Like, really? they got some major designers on board, yeah. 
Yeah. You could buy like a little, little Tom Brown tennis sweater uh, or tennis blazer at Target. It's crazy shit. That doesn't happen anymore, does it? No. No, sir. Well, now it's all until Walmart. now it's going to be Evan. Yeah, right. Until the next one launches. Um, Was that supposed to be a joke about how he dresses like Isaac Mizrahi? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but we've... Uh, it's a good thing we've we've gotten it there. I mean, he looks just like Isaac Mizrahi, or his hair does, I think, something like that. I don't really know. I don't know what Isaac Mizrahi looks like anymore. He looks like Evan. Like, close your eyes, close, and then picture Evan. Yeah. You actually just pictured Isaac Mizrahi. <laughs> I just showed you mentally a picture of Isaac Mizrahi. That's picture good. Evan this... wearing Belgian shoes. Yeah, right. Um... Yeah, this is a good exercise because this is a podcast, you know, so it's not um, people can't see what we're talking about. They just hear it. People always ask me that. Well, like my parents' friends were always like, how do you do a podcast if you can't look at the clothes? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. The podcast about fashion just does. It's a contradiction in terms. It doesn't make any. Every time they ask me that, I just take a week off of work. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the podcast you can wear. It's the one size fits all, um, direct to consumer. Yeah. DTC one size fits all fully reversible. Um, Sam and I are wearing the same hat today. Sam looks cooler in his. I was reading this morning that men are shopping direct to consumer brands like more than ever before during the pandemic. And at first I thought, oh no, that's terrible and so gnarly. But then I thought, well, if Noah or Sam was going to send me a box of stuff, I would take that. What are the, what did it say are the most popular ones? Um, I didn't recognize any of the names to be honest with you, but one of them was actually Indochino. Oh, we should, uh, I mean, we should curate a monthly corporate lunch box. Of the lunch box, it's perfect. Jokes. It's a sandwich. <laughs> Alice Neal hats. You literally just get an old cool, sandwich. like moss that <laughs> yeah. Noah finds upstate. No, I think the corporate lunch box subscription service is a good idea. I mean, it would be, I think we could do it for like $1,200 a month, probably a pretty good like range of stuff. Mm-hmm. How many people, how many subscribers do you think we would get? Well, we have over too, too 10 many. million listeners, so probably that many. So, do you guys have, have any new routines for your morning or afternoon? Um, I mean, I just started running recently. I've gone running like five times. It's kind of a big deal. Do you listen to like inspirational music? No, I don't. I don't listen to music. I listen to... Um, People, I listen to podcasts. I listen to you listen talking. to our podcast. <laughs> I listen you to corporate lunch. You're like Sam. Next time, you really gotta hit that joke faster. <laughs> I go. I go back to the you know the originals, the the pants episode. Um, you oh, know, great one. Hanging out when the hanging out the episode, hanging out. episode two, which I think features Rachel. Um, the first appearance of Sam. Uh, Mobilaji episode. Yeah, I don't know. That one episode where Will killed the guy during the podcast. That's no, I edited that, that out. Episode. We're not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> That's in the bloopers episode that came later. What are your guys' new routines? 
or routines? Well, I every morning when I wake up, uh, the house is freezing. So I put on slippers and make a big pot of coffee. And then I turn on a space heater in the kitchen and I sit in the space heater like jet stream and I try to warm up and then I like start the Oliver day. Twist. Yeah, it feels like really, it's like real like frontier living over here. How cold but is then it? after by like 10 or 11 then the sun comes out and it warms up and then i go bask in the sun like a salamander or a lizard or something to like you know get my like central body heat up you got to be careful you don't catch a cold or something you know you gotta you gotta stay healthy and then i just start working so that's my morning is like kind of bleak yeah it sounds awful you just wake up shivering in a in a dark heatless cold as fuck abode and then immediately it's just into the emails and then just slowly the warmth of your keyboard the laptop the whizzing laptop fan is just blowing a little bit of heat onto your toes your frozen toes yeah and then but then at like five o'clock i play tennis in the sun and i feel better that's nice that's what gay talese does basically he also he's my he's my hitting partner then he does email. Do you play Coach tennis? Gay. Coach Talese. You yeah. play tennis against your twin and you're just evenly matched. No one ever wins. It's just yeah. one one point that goes forever. No yeah, someone, has, someone has to finally drag us off, like kicking and screaming. It's just impossible for either one of you to defeat the other. Are you guys the have you guys met are you guys the same height? Uh I mean, I would say yes, but in truth, he's like one inch taller than me. An inch? Yeah, sucks. What did That's he do that difference. you didn't? He drank his, he, was, he ate his vegetables. He was born first, which, which apparently if you're born for the, the first twin out is usually the like stronger and more, like gets more nutrients in the womb or something and ends up being a little bit bigger. Damn. Luckily, I'm, I'm already I'm six four and he's six five, so it's okay. Right. When we're not together, it's um I look I look great. So. <laughs> uh, cool, cool. Yeah, I'm six six. <laughs> Rachel's six seven, and Will is six eight. It's kind of like we're a perfect. We're actually uh, known as our our new podcast tagline is the tallest podcast about fashion, <laughs> uh, in the world. Yeah, big and long. Big and tall. Big and long is big weird. and tall. <laughs> <laughs> um. Speaking of About which, I've been, hunt- and long. I've been um, hunting for snakes. Like Rachel, the way you and Lloyd are into birding, I do. I look for snakes. I find and identify snakes. Really? Yeah. What? How many have you found? Um, several, many. Yeah. There's a big eastern water snake living under the the bridge that I have to cross to get to the the uh, goat barn that I live in. Does the snake like ask you three questions in order for you to cross the bridge? Kind of. I mean, it sticks its head out menacingly and it's kind of like, it's, it's like, I'm going to bite you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so in a sense, yes. Rachel, what is your morning routine like? Why, you asked the question, is it because you're working on some new morning routines or looking for new morning routines? I'm just looking for new morning routines. I have a post- 5 p.m. routine, but I don't have really a morning routine and I've been trying lots of different things. Well, don't try mine. I don't know. That yeah, sounded you, cool. You could open it all your sounded windows. Like, it sounded like you uh, 
you're living like a small Victorian boy. That sounds really fun to that's me. That's exactly what I'm, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, what's your f- post 5 PM routine? Um, I read a novel and usually I take a bath um, and then I write in my journal and then I have a cocktail. Damn. Hey, BK in the Evan Canoy Museum. What's up, Evan? What's going on? I'm good. I'm all right. I'm hanging in, hanging loose, hanging in my pod. Our, uh, we're all earthlings in our pods now. Yeah. You're in uh, your apartment in San Francisco? Yes. How's the weather? Do you want to give us like a David Lynch weather report? Do you ever do? You ever watch David Lynch's morning weather report? Uh, no, I've never seen that. Actually. Oh, all right. What, what I'll tell you it? about it later. I think every day David Lynch makes a video from his home in Los Angeles and he just sits at his desk and he like, he looks at the thermometer and he's like, it's 67 degrees and the sun's out. <laughs> he just shouts like what the weather is. That's it. Right. Uh, Rachel yeah, doesn't need to They're like 15 yeah. seconds long. They're amazing. It's probably 63. Little breeze. Sunny. Typical San Francisco day where you think it looks warm, but there's a cold wind. What, uh, how are you going to spend your day? Have you been spending your days? Give us a little, uh, routines uh, into the life. We, yeah, what, we were just talking about routines. What are your routines? Uh, okay. I kind of have routines, I guess. That's the, probably the hardest part of this is trying to have a routine, I guess. Cause I used to rely yeah. heavily on a, I guess if you live in a city, maybe not everybody realizes how much you rely on the city for like the structure of your life, I guess. And definitely me, I thought I was already pretty, like I would think I would be not that affected because I work alone in my own space and I live in my space. I would think like mostly I'm in there, but one of the crucial things I guess is I go to yoga at like 7.30 and I'm not a morning person. I hate waking up and I always struggle to get up and my brain takes a really long time to start. So having that, like I always do it where I pay the night before or like I have a membership. So I know I have to go to get my money's worth. Right. So it's like a very shrewd, uh, frugal pressure of being like, okay, I pay the night before and I signed up. So I know I, if I don't get up at 7.30, I'm going to be like, or 7 to get there by 7.30, I'm going to be like pretty upset with myself. So that usually keeps me like three, four times a week. I go there, get there by 7.30. I'm home and like ready to like work and think very clearly. And I'm usually in a pretty good mood by like 8.45. Whereas if I don't do that and I'm left to my own devices, I can sleep too very late. Um, and just be yeah. mad. I mean, the first two weeks was pretty brutal, I'd say. But uh, <laughs> now I'm pretty good about trying to, you know, I get up and try to, usually I just have coffee and drink it till I'm spinning in a circle and there's smoke coming out of my ears. And then... <laughs> uh, Either try to do, if I do yoga, I do it before coffee and do it at like 8, 8.30. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like it's harder to get stuff done, I guess, in one day. The day seems like you're supposed to have more time, but I think because you have so much background like ringing, there's just like a yeah. permanent anxiety ringing in your head maybe that it's like, yeah. at least for me, I can only focus so much the day. <laughs> but yeah, I try to do some kind of either yoga or bike ride first thing in the morning before really trying to think about anything. And then... Heaps, heaps of coffee, like the Australians would say, heaps, uh-huh. heaps, and then uh, that's a large. I always say, it, heaps, mate, and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, oh, coffee, right yeah, here. and then emails. Get the emails out of the way. That could take a couple hours, and then try to work on something. I don't know, a little bit more open ended. And your emails are like ninety five percent people saying, um, 
So is is this olive green shirt really olive green? That's the one part. I asked is the size thirty two pant actually thirty two? I got a sick one that's uh, from a. It's asking me if I want to be part of a men's edition influencer kit. Oh. Um, but they're going to give back to vulnerable communities impacted by COVID, but they don't tell you which or how, but they're promised. <laughs> Influencers uh, are a vulnerable community right now. Yeah. Wait, who's the, I am confused by that. I don't know. I mean, I get, you get a lot of weird shit when you put a company out. When you say you're a company, basically people see all companies as one thing. And so, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. A lot of the emails are customer stuff. And then I have help now. I have one person, one employee. Uh, so he helps also answer some of the wilder customers. What do you, just like, how are you work-wise? Like, where's your mind at? I mean, you have e-com that's, that's pretty fresh and current. So I, I would guess that's popping, but then you've got obviously the debacle of uh, the fallout, the COVID fallout, retail fallout to deal with. And then you're developing and trying to get into production for upcoming seasons. Like what's the break, where's your kind of head at mostly as of now? I guess, well, like first in terms of like how it immediately changes that approach or where, like how it affects things is just like, for me, I, I think maybe, I don't know about other people that work creatively within a, making stuff like this, but I feel like I'm kind of a puddle person or like I'm viscous. <laughs> and then <laughs> and basically by operating on a traditional wholesale calendar, which, you know, there's reasons to fight against it and there's reasons not to, but that was like my exoskeleton like that kept my whole body you know in certain form like I was I had to operate within a very strict timeline always and it doesn't mean anything about the bigger ramifications of fashion stuff but just the idea that you make ideas to show them on a certain date and then you produce them and you deliver them by a certain date it's like when do you show ideas and when do you deliver the ideas it could be in any industry whatever it just so happens that this is fashion is built around weather and so it's seasons and then how radically weird they get because of a big box or a big fashion store that wants to make those seasons start earlier or whatever like that's right. one thing but I, I built my whole you know I allowed myself to partake in that part of the traditional model so that it allowed me the freedom and I just think it makes production easier than just making stuff randomly all year right uh, but so immediately when this happened it like definitely just shattered my glass exoskeleton and then right. I I oozed out all over my. Became a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, luckily, I mean, I guess uh, on one hand, I was really lucky with the timeline that I just finished shipping all the wholesale uh, to the stores in like the first week of March, and we had just shot, you know, we did all the web photos and everything was like ready to go. And usually at that point, I would take like a little couple days off and relax, and then I have studio appointments in SF, right. which is gotten to be pretty substantial since I started doing it. Like I used to get like one or two people a year that would be willing to come. Yeah. And now it, it's like, you know, it would have been probably like up to like 30 or 40 appointments that month, I think. Um, could, could be at best. Uh, but so right then is when like I like took that weekend and then like I think I walked in. I like the last order was to, to Reliquary mm -hmm. and I went over and I wheeled it over in a cart from my studio, you know, like mm -hmm. pretty, pretty primitive over here. And I like bring it in there. And then like, I think I just hadn't had my head up. I was just so in my work of getting it done. And then they were just all talking about it. That was two days before the lockdown here. And I was yeah. like, I then just realized it all. And then I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you didn't see it coming. I just, I think it felt like, then we started talking. I, talk, I talked to you that day, I think. Uh, yeah. Like 
the signs of anxiety about COVID are like the same symptoms as COVID, which is like, yeah, you know, like high heart rate, your dry tongue. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, oh no. You were like Jared Leto on the yoga retreat. Did you see that Jared Leto went on a yoga retreat and then came out like 10 days after coronavirus had exploded everywhere. And he was like, holy shit. He was, he was, he was like in an, on a retreat that was cut off from civilization oh, okay. with, and with no yeah, cell phones. Like yeah. no one's allowed yeah. to talk or anything. Vipassana. He was in Vipassana. Yeah. And, and then he came, he came back to civilization and we were like two weeks into the crisis and he's just like, what? Which that, is like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think in a sense, I just was in my own little, you just, there's such a pressure, I guess maybe because of the size of my project and anybody just deliveries is just so like every day, you know, what your job is when you wake up. It's so clear. It's like, there's all this processing of, the, of each piece that comes through and getting it out on time. It's just like, so you're so focused and there's really not much to like ponder about. And then, once it's done is when you have a release. And then when I had the release, I saw or like basically everyone yeah. was starting to be like, oh, actually, you know, they're going to lock down SF and two. But uh, yeah, so like you said, the website a lot is obviously it's a huge part of it and, and allows, and I take a lot of pride in it and trying to like make it a place to see more than you could see anywhere else and get yeah. more of a dialogue going and try to like really push people, like even each individual customer to open up a conversation about the product because I don't, really see it as you know got a traditional fashion way like i want to engage more like vitzo shelving or something or somebody that's gonna like to get a vitzo shelving you have to have like two or three facetimes before they even let you talk about buying it like they're like you know while mine's not you know the price point and the so it's a lot different but we're trying to as much as possible develop that sentiment of like be serious because you just i don't you know the resale market is kind of a whole problematic thing in my mind of allowing people to keep buying stuff at a faster and faster speed um, and like buy it on your credit card and sell it before you even pay your credit card bill. Yeah. Or Just like, knowing you can really flip it. Messy. And so that, that's one thing anyways, but yeah, the website very good. allows me the stores has been mostly okay. I think a lot of independent smaller stores are able to adapt. And if they didn't already have e-commerce, they definitely got their ass in order to like either do phone orders or, you know, it's only, yeah. I think a lot of middle to bigger players that, probably can't swing their body that fast to pivot and do something yeah. different um which you know has there's a lot of ways of looking at that i guess i have some pretty yeah. strong opinions but i could say it for later <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. yeah. i mean in terms of wait till later you're talking about wholesale i mean i'm sure stores are trying to figure out like they're gonna have to figure out what their budget's gonna be for next year and it's just there's a lot of stuff that means that that one's not gonna go on it's not like you could just like choose a route I think there's going to be a lot of everyone figuring out for themselves, which is kind of cool because it is, again, it's a pretty archaic system. So uh, I think it leaves a lot of room to try a new idea because basically it's already so risky. This whole, this whole like next spring thing for, yeah. for clothing companies, it's all talk about next spring because that's what you would show in June and then produce at the end of this year. And so uh, it's so risky that it already pushes you to try something pretty radical. Like Lars from Mantle, uh, a company that, from Australia that's run by a good friend of mine. Um, he's like using it as an opportunity to really change the way that he produces and shows clothing and try to just minimize on his overhead on like sampling and flying to Paris for a lot of people it's like super extraneous to like even myself included it's like a huge trip to do for a week and I love it I get to see it's really the only time for me living in San Francisco which is very removed from that whole thing to like talk with uh, peers I guess and, and like see Camille Horgens or Lars from Mantle or Nicholas Daly it's like we're all kind of in this dialogue, even though we don't see each other on a regular basis. And yeah. it's really 
it makes it feel like you're part of a cool kind of old uh, Vienna kind of secession or something where you're like, yeah. go and talk. And we do, we share, I mean, we talk very specifically about business stuff. We talk about creative stuff. We talk about, you know, everything really. And that's the only time it's once or whatever, twice a year that we yeah. get to do that for a week. So for me, I really value it, but it is a huge, you know, it's a, it is archaic in some ways. Did you always know that you were going to, that like having strong e-com was going to be how you were going to make this work? I mean, obviously that's the way you get control. Your margins are better. So, I mean, that's like probably the number one reason to do it, but like, it's kind of funny. There weren't, there are a lot of brands that weren't as set up on e-com going into this that probably ate a lot of shit. And in some sense you uh, were pretty well positioned for uh for a crisis like this, I mean, not, you know, we're all fucked is, is the truth, but you're maybe slightly less fucked than you would have been otherwise. Sure. Uh, yeah. I'd say from the start of me making stuff, uh, because I didn't have any, I guess, formal like experience working for clothing companies or didn't go to like a very, a school that was super rooted in like contemporary fashion practices or something. I went to more of like a trade school that, really had a lot of people more that had worked at like non-fashion clothing kind of companies like Gap or Levi's or whatever. And so it was really more trade, like not looking at how to operate it. You know, it was very open-ended, I guess, on how you can make a company. So by the time I left there, I was just making shirts and, and jackets that were for myself mostly and like explore, exploratory work, like a new pattern or whatever. And people could come into my studio and order them fabrics and I would just make them. And so the, the price was definitely dramatically too low for the kind of shit I, now knowing what I, I know, but whatever that, that just kind of geared, I think my approach, which was definitely like a one-to-one -one thing. Yeah. And I didn't really know or have any ideas about wholesale. And then uh, I learned and taught myself about it from kind of paying attention to other people and, and meeting people. And uh, Leah from Eloquary kind of like, I went with her one time to market week and then I saw and I met a couple of people and kind of got a feel. In New York? Yeah, I went to New York it was the first time I went before I even showed anything, I think. Because I met you guys the first time I went to New York, I think. And then next, maybe not. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure when I met you. But that, yeah, I was just like, okay, I got a feel for it. I saw trade shows. I saw independent showrooms. I saw everything that people did. And immediately, I was very opinionated as I can be. Um, uh, and I just was like, yeah, there's parts of wholesale I really don't like. And I wasn't happy about, I mean, I really, ultimately, as far as I've been into clothing, and I have to, the, the, the point of view comes from somebody who loves clothing. Like, I really love clothing as an object and all this stuff, and I revere it. But I hate, like, you know, clothing industry is so fraught with problems, basically. Yeah. Uh, and one of them, the biggest one, I'd say, really bigger than anything, is the idea of sale. I mean, I think sale is, sale allows companies to grow faster and bigger than they could otherwise it allows right. people to make product that's less considered it allows it shoves people to spend money that they don't have on stuff they definitely don't need and it, it's just everything about it ramps the speed up to the place that it's at now and so i think i already saw basically like you know wholesale is basically you're, if you're doing an only wholesale model you're relying on only stores to sell the stuff you have to charge more for your stuff because you're going to make all your money on the wholesale price yeah. Uh, so then it has more likelihood of going on sale because <laughs> it's already a high price. And then you can't control what stores do with stuff. And if you rely on stores solely, then 
you really aren't in a position to be like, I can't work with that store anymore. Like they keep putting stuff on sale. I told them not to or whatever. Like it becomes yeah. really, really hard to manage that. And so I think early on, I, I saw that I was trying to approach it differently, really like outside of the way that most people do it. I just kind of want to be my own thing. And again, like if it's social for like furniture maker or something, like I make this shirt, I fucking boil the shirt down over a year and a half of working on the pattern like the shirt isn't meant to be tweaked next season it's not meant to have a different collar or a different button of the pocket or something like this is that shirt to me and that shirt i've seen in something similar or i've you know the ideas for this shirt or why i want to wear the shirt like this or something comes from like looking back at images from as far back as it's like you know it can be the turn of the century sometimes it could be in the 20s it could be in the 50s it could be artists in the 80s and 90s you know whatever like i'm looking at proportion and form and ideas that have lasted so that type of stuff to me is just like going on sale is just like basically you're forfeiting trying to break you're just not really trying enough to break a you're just being like okay well i guess that's just the way it is you know it's like i don't want to i don't want to accept that it's sort of like admitting how temporary something is you know what i mean like it's by, by putting something on sale, you're saying like, oh, we have to clear this one out to make room for the next one. And when you're, you know, if you pay attention, you realize that that just, that cycle never ends. And it's just a right. constant, uh, it's and just like constant. Fabric, I, there was a good company, there is a good company in, in England that is only, pretty much only direct. I think they do some wholesale in Japan called SCH Kelly. That's really one, ex, excellently executed. Um, but you know, certain style of clothes or whatever, but just in terms of like the way they copy and, and the kind of communication and stuff. But, uh, he said like early on when I was in school, I think I read something that the dude wrote, which was like, fabric never goes on sale. Sewing never goes on sale. You know, right. it's just like, it doesn't really add up. It doesn't make sense. Um, and it's basically a disservice to the provenance of each product. I mean, I think that if there was some way to communicate that every time you pick up a t-shirt or boxers or a shirt or a jacket or whatever it is you should be able to like hear the hum of everything that went into that thing getting there you should like the provenance should be at the front of front of your mind or the front of that product because if it's not you know we already know like we can't go on the way we're going i mean i think it's very clear uh that things have to change in a pretty dramatic way in the next few years for us to be able to keep breathing oxygen on the planet and so that to me like you know acting one is like acting like clothing is frivolous is Obviously, you know, you can't act like that because it has a huge impact. I think something, it's like, I don't know what number it is on the polluters of the world in industry, like fourth or fifth or something is fashion. But, uh, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot is, especially since this started, because I watch a lot of like, uh, it's cool. Part of this pandemic thing has been cool is to watch like live conversations between noteworthy individuals, which, you know, yeah. you never get to see like a very low-fi production of like, to people that are super accomplished in their field, like doing, you know, like this or something where I just even watched this morning when I had coffee, I watched Will talk to Bob Weir or something, you know, it's like, That's so right. it's done by the phone, you know, it's like, well, it's so lo-fi, like everybody's obviously just humans, they all just do, it's like, so it's, it's cool that it reduces everybody to a very human platform um, and can't really be spiced up too much. Even if you put your computer on books, you can only, <laughs> good. but uh, you know, I, I watched a couple of which included like clothing designers talking with an artist or a painter or with a musician or something. And I just had this kind of thing like blaring alarm in my head, like 
everybody puts clothing designers, at, you know, this is kind of the whole uh, designer myth or cultism around like a designer figure as like this artist type figure. And uh, they're in clothing in the past, I probably more than ever, but in the past like 10 years, there's like really like these kind of idol type people. Like you watch them move from this house to this house to this house or whatever. And they're compared with artists and they're seen as equals to artists, but clothing people, clothing designers, whatever, fashion designers, you know, our trail of uh, ecological footprint or whatever is so, it's such a not an even playing field. Like you can't be like, oh, you know, we're on this cultural, you know, like cultural self-expression thing together. And this is your platform, this is my thing. And you play music and I do clothes. And it's like, no, like that dude could make a million, you know, whatever. He can make all the records of his lifetime and blow his horn his whole life. And the ecological footprint is like, you know, this much from like, okay, maybe a couple of records went in the trash and there's some plastic excess or something or like, but it's so minimal. And the sound his horn makes doesn't <laughs> cause any, you know, he's not polluting the earth with the horn. And then you look at the fashion designer and he's like, it's like the fucking earth's on fire. It's exploding behind him. And, <laughs> you know, there's rivers in India that are polluted and turning toxic green and people are dying from cancer from, you know, whatever, but pesticides and shit. And it's like, that's the clothing designer. And he's like, yeah, we're all equal. You know, we're just doing our thing. And it's like, no, like clothing needs to be looked at a little bit. It's, it's more intense. It's more of a, you know, it needs to be, I think, a little bit more considered, honestly. There needs to be some, I don't know how to do it. I'm not, I don't want it to sound like too Lenin or Marxist, but it's like there needs to be some kind of control, a way to keep it a little bit uh, contained because it can't just be like, you know, make idea. It's not all about ideation, right? It's not all about just getting ideas out there because that's what sales tied to. Sales tied to ideas that don't work, ideas that weren't needed right. or ideas that weren't considered enough. Um, so well, one thing you're talking about, well, I mean, the, the, the Marxist thing, what well, that would be like uh, each person, you get like pants and shirts, you get tickets. No, no I don't you mean get, it like you that, get that, one that. pants ticket a year <laughs> no, and I mean, two well, shirts tickets. One I mean, Evan Canary layering system. No, I mean, if there's some way to like monitor company growth, I guess, I don't know. Yeah. Like yeah. some kind of cap. I mean, obviously it's not going to work out in capitalism, but if there was some way to be like, if you couldn't do sale, like companies would have to grow so much slower. They would have to be so much more considered. They couldn't do the ramp up the production. They couldn't ramp up the employees. They couldn't do so. Basically, what I think is very this hasn't been thought out and tested by any economist, but <laughs> you you would end up with more smaller companies and less not like a you know a conglomerate of giant companies. And yeah, I think that ultimately would lead to a bigger middle class. You'd have more you know whatever all that kind of stuff. So um, I don't well, know. an important piece of it is. And I think it gets kind of to the point you're making, which is like people need to understand value in a different way. Like people's values have to change, but you also have to, to for it to, for what you're saying to kind of like really be effective. And I think this is something that you do with your brand quite well is like, make sure that people understand the value of the piece. Like, and not just by like inundating people with information and saying like, oh, this is like from Japan and this is this, this is that. But like even sharing like, about the development process and the pattern making process or, or just whatever, just however it can be done that communicates um, actual value. And then, and then things like sales become less exciting or uh, maybe less necessary when people start to understand the prices of things. Also not to mention if there were no sales, everything would be like 30% cheaper anyway. Right. The hard thing is that you have to do, you have to try to figure out like something that I 
we talk about now a lot uh, is how to achieve that stuff without words almost in a way, because in our generation, words have become, I mean, in my opinion, like almost in terms of advertising or marketing or something or trying to communicate a message from a brand to people, it's like words are almost pointless. I mean, if a giant mega billion dollar corporation says handmade, whatever, and then I say handmade, whatever, it's like, who fucking cares? Like, whatever. You, you have to, it's, you have to try to figure out how to communicate between the lines, you know, which is a very big challenge, uh, which is cool. Uh, but it, yeah, it's, for me, a lot of it is on imagery and visuals. And I always battled with it because when I, I think maybe when I first started making, when I started the company, it was 2015. And maybe that was like the height of oversaturation of like information of like, uh, what do you call them? Like crowdfunded kind of companies and stuff here, yeah. like in SF. Yeah. So like gene companies where they're like, and we're going to show you this and this is how this, and it's like, and then by the end of it, people's head was spinning, you know, and they're like, yeah, uh, yeah well, I think they're giving me a lot of information. So I trust them. And here's the, pro it's like, but I would read that stuff as a person who knows how to make clothes. And I'd be like, that shit's wildly inaccurate. And they're yeah. just like all this kind of random shit. So how, how can you try to engage people to think harder about it without just throwing them a paragraph or throwing them an essay? So. Right. There was that moment of like, I feel like you don't see it anymore, but people got really into like full transparency. About Radical everything. transparency. Right? Yeah. So it'd be like, here's the field where the cotton was grown. And like, and Which is, it did. It's, yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, if you look at the only comparison you can make with clothing that has a close to being a, a big ecological footprint that needs that kind of cultural consciousness shift is food. Like, you know, and food, it, it's been going on since like the seventies, I think probably. And a lot of it is rooted here with the, I don't know, like Chez Panisse and stuff, the restaurant here in, in Berkeley that was Alice Waters and the idea of farmer table and all that stuff. So, I mean, part of that, you know, of course has value, but how you execute it and then whether you're just using that as another marketing ploy is like, you know, an entirely different <laughs> can of yeah. worms, I guess. Cause if you're just saying all that stuff and showing them all this, showing people that stuff, but then you're still just trying to make, you know, $20 jeans or $60 jeans and trying to get people to feel like that's still now it's still now it's okay because you saw a picture of the factory or because we're using less water to fade our jeans or whatever and it's like right I just think there's like a really bigger thing that's gonna have to happen than that I don't I mean that's all part of it at least people question it but uh it's yeah I don't know I think that probably around the turn of the century you had a lot less clothes and you wore them for a lot longer and the idea was yeah they cost a lot of money but this is like, this is my suit. This is me. And I run this every day. <laughs> yeah. Or even, I don't think you have to go too far back for that to be yeah. the case. You know, I think that was the case in the eighties and nineties too. Right. I mean, like this was the eighties. I wouldn't have like a closet full of Evan Canori clothes. I'd have like one Armani suit. It would just be. Well, yeah. All right. But, but yeah, um, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I think that it's gotten. I mean, yeah, I think it's basically it's always con it's constantly speeding up, and a part of that is, you know, sale. And I, I think at, at the intensity and the volume that it's at, uh, with like online, you know, e-commerce and then in stores, and just, I just think it's allowed it to get to such a crazy pace, and that's so. So cool. isn't there? There's sort of a people are proposing this like in real time, right? Like, isn't, you know, business of fashion and elsewhere, they're, they're publishing these stories where people are proposing these new models, right? Like, isn't this sort of currently being, I don't know, you know, how much faith I have in the, in like, or how much change the system can even withstand. Cause you do have billion dollar companies that aren't going to do, you know, right. 
that uh like you you know what is it about turning around a big ship or something it takes a long time i don't know um i think it, I think it sinks <laughs> just fucking doesn't turn around it sinks yeah um no yeah 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 i think it's i think there's a lot of talk now for sure since this immediately since it started like things are going to change things need to change you know and i and i i guess i'm curious to see how much of that can land but yeah there, i think it's pretty extreme consciousness shifting and and uh also has to do with greed and i mean from your perspective evan like what what does have to change to like move away from a like the wholesale sale model like is it really just like a massive um like consciousness change on behalf of the consumer or is it like a delivery timing thing or is it like up to brands to just like negotiate with stores that don't um, put things on sale, uh, you know, like two months after they're delivered or whatever. Um, is it is it some sort of like just like bigger structural thing that like needs to be negotiated, like on behalf of some like maybe not the CFDA, but some like larger like representative body on behalf of like designers and brands? Like, what do you think? Like, how do you how do we move to um, a model where consumers aren't waiting to buy to buy stuff from stores um when they're 30 percent off i think it's gonna be i mean it would require one is the, the most difficult part i guess the quickest answer is that it requires on every level uh to be like a change that means that from the biggest president of a biggest company that his salary is whatever it is and the top dudes make a certain amount and then the people that actually sell the clothes make a certain amount from that level to the independent shop that has to pay their rent on a street corner in Chicago and sometimes cash flows hard. And if they have to go into sale earlier, if they have to do sale to help cover their employees, and there's a lot of stuff why it's so hard to navigate it. Uh, and then on a brand level too, because you also have cash flow issues and all this stuff. But I don't know. I mean, I, I know one example is like in France up until pretty recently, I think they still have it, but they had laws about when sale could happen. There used to be two weeks a year only that things could be on sale. And they had, they made it like, it was a very strict, pretty strictly enforced, I think, law. And there was like, you know, a spring or whatever, a summer one and then a winter one. And uh, you know, that's not extreme enough for my, my vision, but that's, that's definitely like, <laughs> you know, at least it's being contained a bit, you know, where now we're in the wild west where some stores, I mean, no joke, you see like in October shit go on sale for fall or, or, or earlier. And it's like, yeah. You're just like, you know, what are, what are we after here? What are we really getting at? <laughs> like, but right. yeah, it, ha it would have to happen on so every front. I have no fantasy that I know how to like implement massive change, but I know that there's something wrong and I think that needs to be talked about uh, in a way more literal way and not like, oh, you know, like we're introducing a sustainable line or doing this or it's like the word sustainable is like so out of the question at this point. It's just like, how can we even just rein this thing in so that it's not as explosively bad for the planet, but yeah, I mean, I think stores would, it's hard to say cause there's already so many big existing stores and brands and shit like that, but there would have to be some kind of pivot to introduce less product. Uh, you'd have to try to figure out the numbers to see if they could sell less product at more, but at more pieces at full price, if they can maintain the same kind of numbers or something close to those numbers so that it doesn't, you know, I can't ask people to just stop making money or whatever that they've been making, but if there's ways to do it in a more solid way, which is like avoiding sale, not doing sale, not making a product that goes on sale, which means 
maybe slower seasons because they have to spend more time developing something to say, yeah, like this sneaker is actually going to last five years instead of one year. Or we actually considered you wearing this dress shoe and not just how it looks because there's a zipper here. Or, you know, <laughs> there, there's a lot of that stuff. I mean, it seems funny, but I just read an interview with a shoe designer where he talks about working somewhere and how it was really cool because it was really just about ideation and we never had to worry about functionality. And I was like, that's fucking insane. That's so gnarly at like that level and the output that they have. And you're talking about leather shoes. You're talking about like everything from dye, like, you know, dyes that go into the leather that often are toxic to the cows and the factory farming. It's like just so complex to talk about it with that kind of frivolity or whatever is like so beyond now. Like, I mean, one simple thing is just like timing, right? I mean, people keep talking about this. Maybe everyone's sick of talking about it. But like if winter coats were delivered in October, when people start thinking about it, there'd be more demand for them when they're at full price. But if things, if winter coats are posted on essence.com or whatever in August, when there's not much demand for it, they're going to sit there for a long time. And then people are just going to wait until they go on sale anyone because everyone, anyway, because everyone knows it's coming. You could just look at your emails from last year and be like, oh, when does the Essence sale start? I, I, I know, you know, it's always at the same time. And then just say like, well, I'm going to hold out until, uh, you know, this thing I want is at least 30% off or whatever. What are, Evan, who are, we were talking the other day about, um, tell us about who some of your design heroes are. I, I know you got strong opinions about who they aren't, but Name. like we were talking once about a pant. I think that, um, because you're American and in San Francisco, some people might assume you have a certain sort of set of inf influences or interests, but like we were talking about a pant you make that, that sort of uh, uh, echoes a Yoji Yamamoto pant, which is, um, I don't know that that would or wouldn't be surprising to anyone, but um, um, tell us who your influences are. <laughs> tell us the secret sauce. Tell, yeah. us, tell us the ingredients. No, I mean, I mean that, to Evan Canari. I think there's a unique. I mean, if you you brought up Yoji, but there's there in terms of the hit, the hit, you know longer looking back farther instead. Of, I guess I'll try to be quick, but looking back a little bit further, if you're talking about like Comb and Yoji in the late whatever, and they're really really furtive period or whatever, 80s 90s, uh, that what they were doing was so much bigger than just I'd say like a fashion sphere. Like they were really, it seemed like breaking down concepts of clothing and then but they, they themselves were hugely and are hugely inspired by vintage and history and i think that that's something that's not really talked about or something like because in fashion it's so uh, fractured into like these little spheres like oh you're into vintage or whatever but like no i like gucci i don't care about you know i don't, I don't know whatever it is but like it's so funny because if if you actually talk to most designers i mean of course that's insane to be like i don't look at or you know most people are looking at vintage clothes from Raph Simmons to whatever like yeah that's that's just insane if you worked in any field if you worked in architecture if you were it's like of course that's what came before whether it was in the 1800s or the 1900s you're looking at certain kind of collars you're looking at certain kind of ruffles you're looking at you know whatever that's our costume history and if you're really interested in clothing then you should be looking at costume history and learning from that and seeing what worked and what didn't and ideas that were tried and that weren't or what you could I mean you know that's your encyclopedia and so that period for like, I think Yoji and, and Comb were really cool because they were playing with a lot of like really, really traditional ideas, uh, but messing with them. But I think the pant, the pant specifically you're talking about is like the Yoji elastic 
like suiting wool. So it's just like, you know, if you saw it, the way it was presented as a full suit or something, it might look traditional. Like it could have be out of an August Sander book of some dude wearing a suit in Austria in like the 1910 or something. But the way it's put together or the construction or think like elastic on the waistband or certain things happening within it are actually like, you know, they were really flipping it on its head. Uh, so I, li I mean, I like that stuff. I, I think like along the lines like Margiela, something where they actually really put, it doesn't even matter. You don't have to be in the fashion at all. You could be my dad and be like, whoa, that's insane. Look, he took the dress form and that's the jacket. You know, I don't know. It's like, it's so simple and yet so complex that it can reach anyone because it's really just the idea of reinvention of what clothing, a clothing apparatus might be or, uh, mm -hmm. or how they've been and how can you twist that. So I think I like people like that that are really looking at it in a holistic, I guess, longer, longer term way, I guess, and really trying to push the medium and not just within a fashion sphere of like, oh, you know, it's cool to reference this or reference that or this style looking like it's the 70s now or whatever, but really holistically kind of approaching it like this is clothing. What do I want to say or do with clothing? Um, and be considered, I guess, that's the one thing. But the, that period is also like, that stuff's so archival, the quality of it is so insane. Like you could, there's like a store in Berlin that has like only 80s and 90s Yoji and comb. And it's like, you could buy a pair of those pants and they're like, feels like almost brand new. And they're like yeah. what, 40 years old. And it's like that stuff, the wool is like the best quality, like, you know, worsted wools or whatever. Like, it's just so crazy. The stuff was made so good. and. Uh, the idea lasts, I think, a lot of them. There's a lot. I mean, I'm sure there was wacky shit happening then. And they had sale and they had bad ideas. And it's hard <laughs> to navigate, you know, and not do that. But I think that I like people that I think are thinking more holistically. I think now, now I like people that I think, uh, you know, if it's its own, successfully its own world and that when you see the product, complicated because i like that someone a customer can buy it and make it their own and they don't look like they're wearing the thing like a very popular sneaker or something you try to fit into your outfit or look like a normal person you end up just looking like a dude with that shoe or like a, a girl with that bag or whatever you know whatever it is i'm trying not to use gender norms i don't know why i said bag or girl, but, <laughs> but, you know it's it's just like that the products are too isolated so it can't really be someone you can't attach your own memory you can't attach your own I don't know. I can't really build your own nostalgia to it in a way. Um, but I, so I, but I, I do like people that make their own world where you see it and you're like, yeah, like that's from their fucking orbit, their own, like, if you look at somebody like Paul Harden or something, like it, there's a lot, it just looks like, yeah, it's from like his orbit. And sometimes it's, you know, certain people put it all the way together and then you kind of look like you're trying to look like you're from that orbit, which is too extreme. <laughs> but yeah. I, I just like product that's, Tactile, I, I there's a couple of people that make stuff. I think we talk about Casey Casey and, you know, Pond, and I think they're making stuff that like, when you feel it or something, you know there's something different about it. it just like has yeah. a, I don't know, it's, it's just different. It has its own, carries its own kind of aura, I think, which is really cool to try to achieve that. Paul Harnden's gonna be on the next episode of Corporate Lunch. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna go to Brighton or Birmingham, wherever the hell he lives. We're gonna go to the pub where he uh, has a residency. I feel like he might not know that coronavirus is happening. Yeah, that's right. He's still trying to get over Spanish flu, I think. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> no, but, you know, I think it's basically, it, uh, there's a there's other issues with that, but I don't know. I'm not going to get into, like, price stuff and where it ends up, like, 
aside from the price, the product itself is just so idiosyncratic that it lives outside of anything, you know, which I, that I guess is yeah. what I'm getting at. I like if these people didn't partake in a traditional fashion model where stuff goes on sale and all this kind of stuff, or if it wasn't like that, but we're not having that conversation, we're just talking about product and who makes stuff that I think is cool and admirable. I, I just think that that idea of stuff that like, you don't need to need to know anything about context of fashion or anything. You could just see it and be like, that shirt has this whole crazy thing going on with it, whether it's the fabric or the crinkling, or whatever smell, you know, anything. I don't know. So I like <laughs> smell that. is a good reason to buy clothes. Yeah. I buy clothes that smell good. RTH, you go in there and everything's been sprayed so much. You're like, dude, this shirt smells insane. It's so good. Yeah, it's true. Um, but yeah. And crinkles. You love fucking wrinkles. Evan just loves wrinkled clothes. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it allows you, I mean, think about living in clothes and then think about some super crispy white tee that you just spent a lot of money on or something or white shirt and how quickly you're going to get pasta sauce on it. It's definitely going to be fast. I know, but in those moments before the sauce hits the shirt, it's <laughs> just perfect. You of all people, you and my brother are like, they're like, you know, you're going to, you get all excited, you get it. And then I'm sure within five minutes, you've gotten something on it because you're slobs. It happens. Yeah, I like I like things to be – I like wrinkles too, but I like when the wrinkle is the shape of the package, like a white T-shirt, <laughs> when you, like, take it out of its, pe- like, pack wrap, it still has, like, the rectangle in the center from – yeah, I like yeah. it to to be, like, factory finish. You run that? You would, you would run that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Super yeah. creased sleeve. No, I think it all – for me, it just all comes down to human hand. You know, like, does it look – I mean, sometimes that's more literal, like crinkling or whatever, but – I don't like super, you know, I'm not talking about like diesel in like the early 2000s where it looks like you rubbed them in like an oil spill or something. Like I don't like <laughs> manipulated patina that much. Like I don't like forced, forcing a look of character. But right. if it has some kind of, for lack of a better word, artisanal handness to it, like for my clothes, personally, I make a huge, difficult uphill battle of always doing like single needle sewing, which is like, implies absolutely that it's handmade like you can't automate it it can't get ran through a machine that does the, the seam joining much more efficiently and faster and allow you to make stuff for cheaper uh, but i greatly admire whether or not people can see or tell from it what it represents and the feeling that it gives which is like that it's human hand and so i think anytime it's very very indicative of the human hand or human hand process that's the kind of product that i'm usually very drawn to and the same goes for like art really the material materiality material materiality and nice materiality right yeah. i think an attraction to materiality evan what are you working on now because you're um you know the last couple of years my sense is like you've you've really expanded the canori product line to include like sort of a full system there's like you know three pant fits and a bunch of jackets and um shirts and everything feels like it really like fill you know fulfills a purpose and like fits within the wider vision are you are you um you know continuing to add new types of product or are you focusing right now on like refining what you have and developing new um stuff with different fabrics and like um sort of drilling down into like ideas in that sense and less so like the design and like construction of garments uh it's both i mean both i think on one hand i it's the only constraints I have for what I make is that I want to wear it and I feel a need to wear it. So, or like, you know, it has to fit in with that framework. It's quite a tight constraint. Like if 
because I'm still wearing a hoodie and a zip jacket and the big shirt that I make or something and that's all I wear and I don't really I'm not left with this one idea that I really really want to be wearing then that's it I don't add anything new I mean I'm like yeah this is still working for me and I don't I haven't found like a, vo a void that needs to be filled within that set of stuff so part of it is refining and saying like oh that thing like maybe it could be updated or changed or I think now like it's been this is my gonna be my five year five years for this fall um and I'm gonna start for next spring I think like to maybe take a little bit bigger swings at refining some of the stuff like maybe not so much visually in the design but in the patterns and the fit and I think there's a lot of stuff that I've gotten into that has warped it a little bit that needs to be updated um not too dramatically to lose anyone that's into the stuff the way it's been but just enough to update it to where i'm at now i think just in, mostly it's in terms of fit um and certain pattern changes but uh you mean evan you mean like taking a pattern an existing pattern yeah and like, retool we're retooling it and like if you for me like i make a shirt called the flat hem shirt which is like the ultimate simplest possible button down shirt that you wouldn't tuck in and uh, I started, that was like the first, one of the first, that was the first shirt I made in 2015. At that time, I mean, it was like trying to talk people out of wearing like nudie jeans and like Gitman shirts or something. So like people were wearing tight stuff. So my shirt was like baggy, like to people, I was like, I had to push to be like, this is a button down shirt. People are like, oh no, it's like a coach's jacket. I'm like, dude, it's not a fucking coach's jacket. This is a button down shirt. There's just like room to like lift your arm up and not rip the shirt or something. And so... Now that shirt seems probably like slim to people. And so yeah. we're trying to like not change just cause like that pendulum swings back and forth and it's always gonna keep changing. So you don't wanna just like follow it every move. But I just know for myself, there's certain pieces that I was wearing then that I don't wear that much now. And I know now the tweaks that I could do to them to make myself wear them, I guess, that's it. And so if I do that, I'll be really happy to wear everything more consistently. And then I think that that's more honest in terms of what I'm offering. Um, but then there's also new stuff. I mean, there's definitely still stuff that I slowly but surely would like to add or change. Um, a lot of it now though, I'd say after five years is going to be about communication and about, I guess the other part that we talked about in the beginning, which is the harder part of like the X factor kind of metaphysical approach of how do you show and communicate and sell product in a more holistic and more considered way that like for me, my goal, there's two things I want, which is like make stuff that I love and then get it to people in like the most positive way possible and so that they keep it. Like I want people to keep it. Like I don't want to see it on grill. Like that's, I'm sad. <laughs> like it's not, it's not good. It's, you know, it's just, it's, it means that something didn't work or they shrank it or so that, that means like, so now I'm trying to think about it that way, like more holistically, like what are the reasons that cause people not to keep clothes for a long time? part of it I can't change which is like an entire consciousness mentality I can like try my best to affect it but from my end what can I do like it's kind of maybe showing people about garment care or something so that like people like my brother don't get a shirt and throw it in the dryer and then be like dude it doesn't fit anymore and I'm like yeah well that was 100% wool gauze and like you're actually not even supposed to wash it at all it's supposed to go in the dry cleaner and like you know stuff like that which I say on the tag you know on the, hang the care label says what to do but people rarely follow that stuff so uh, that's part of it, you know, just trying to look backwards and say, okay, when people get stuff, how can I get them to keep it? And how can I get them to think a little bit more, just consider it before they get stuff. And hopefully that affects how they get everything, not just stuff from me, but 
So I also really was hoping that this fall was trying to do this kind of bigger project idea um, to kind of sell it. I don't know. I don't want to say celebrate because that sounds pretty grandiose for someone who's only been in business for five years. But I wanted to do some kind of project this, this fall uh, that was going to be, I think, in New York, but it's going to be postponed now. <laughs> but some kind of like thing that involves other mediums, other crafts, other people that are making stuff, whether it's furniture or ceramics or food or music even and just try to like bring together stuff to kind of bridge that gap instead of yeah clothing being seen as this kind of uh, planned obsolescence product and trying to be like a more permanent looking way of presenting clothing like if someone makes a silver ring in their studio in Brooklyn or something and then it's in a store like all this stuff goes into it you know and it's like that how can we really avoid overproducing and putting stuff on sale over consumption how can we you know, as a tiny little voice, how can I uh, go against that, I guess, because that's where I'm at now, which still, it's a little bit less focused, I guess, on just pumping out product, which I've never been interested in doing anyways. So it's just trying to figure out how can you do the same product, but with ever increasing integrity or efficiency or, you know, I don't know. That's actually how we're thinking about the podcast right now too. So yeah, I was just thinking how our real, you know, this is a real, our farm to table, uh, zoom approach. You know, we want people to respect how much, how much goes into it, how much I prepared yeah. to talk to Evan today. I didn't really do much talking. Evan, you talk a lot. <laughs> I, th- I kind of, I didn't think I knew we were going to do it today. And then I accidentally poisoned myself with coffee. And so I was really, <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like we, you know, we can do things. There's like two ways you can approach it right now, which is like, just talk about the current situation and like have little anecdotes about that or like kind of look the elephant in the room of what's going on in a bigger way with art. You know, you can just say humanity is already like the road runner off the cliff and hasn't looked down yet. And like, there's all this stuff that we have to figure out. Is it road runner that goes off the cliff? Who goes off the cliff? I guess maybe the Wile E. Coyote chasing the Roadrunner, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Wile E. Coyote when he's off the cliff and then he doesn't look down and he runs really far in the air. That's like all of human society is kind of doing that until we try to build a ladder back and figure out how to live in another way. But then if we're just talking about just clothing world, which is what this is geared towards, then I think, you know, it's more interesting to me to talk about the heavier, hard to swallow realities than... I don't know what my exercise routine is. Yeah, I thought we were just going to talk about like tacos and skateboarding and like. You, want, you, want the top, your... you really just want the top three burritos in SF? You want me to get yeah. tweets for talking about that? Have you had any? I, I know the other day, I think you said you had a, a first burrito. It was the longest you'd gone without having a burrito in your whole life after like a few well, weeks. I was from, I'm from Connecticut, so there was no burritos free. Like, Took a long time to get to the first. Burrito. Connecticut is just pizza and karate. I'm, Strip the, malls. The first burrito I ever had was in New Haven on a street corner by Yale, and I blew my mind. <laughs> and then you're like, I'm moving to San Francisco, the home of the burrito. Uh, that's yeah. when you knew. No, but I moved here when I was 18, and I think that that was probably the longest I've ever gone, for sure. No, I didn't. I wasn't going to ask you for your top three burritos, but we should wrap up. Um, but you should you should give us some vibes. You got 13 vibes ready? Can you tell us 13 of your favorite things? Seen any good documentaries lately? Reading any good books? Uh, I actually watched a cool one about uh, Louis Louis Kahn last night. That was pretty sick. Uh, I'm in a lot of a lot of architecture stuff right now. Uh, all right, thir- two vibes. One is John Pawson. <laughs> yeah. No one knows that one, but John John Pawson book minimum. 
uh, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, obviously there's been so much since like, I guess well, Marie Kondo or whatever, like there's a lot of like joke and easy to over exaggerate the idea of minimal, like minimal possessions or something, or even just less possessions. Uh, and I think the whole, what, what's her book? What's it called? The tidy, Tidying Up, The Magic yeah. of Tidying Up. Um, but Pawson, I think it has a cooler, I don't know, it seems like a more human approach to it or something. He's just kind of, it's the same idea of considering, I guess, before you consume more extreme yeah. and uh, a way of living of uh, kind of, some people are good about meditating and clearing their head and stuff, but his approach I think is more about space as meditation, which I think is really cool and, and living in spaces that allow you more clarity. I mean, I don't have the money to live in one of his houses, but, I mean, I think, yeah. but it's, it's just, it's really cool to, to read it. And I think he's, yeah, I just, that's, I've been reading a lot of that stuff. I'm really into his work. And uh, I think interviews with him too, he's really grounded about it. And it never sounds like it's coming from a place of like holier than thou. It's always just like, this is my problem. This is my obsession. This is how I have to live. And some people like it and it works for them. And some people don't, but I think he's, yeah, it's pretty rad. Um, and that basically like after the first two weeks of it, freaking out about this being stuck in your house, then I started, I got that book delivered. And then I was like, yeah, all right, I got a mission. I'm going to get everything that I don't need out of here. But in a way that's like, not just like, I feel like you re can read some stuff and then you just like bail on everything you own. And then you're like, actually, I kind of like that chair. Why did I get rid of it? Like, yeah. <laughs> whereas I think it, his it maybe seems a little bit more, like it allows for you to tune it into what you need or something. So like, I love objects and product and stuff. So I like, I can't really do without stuff that I have. Some stuff I just, you know, I see it and I, think of a story or I have some joyous memory about it or something. And so it's kind of like, I don't want to just bail on everything, but that that's probably the biggest vibe. And then other vibe, Brian Eno music, <laughs> which goes hand in hand, yeah. which, which is like Deep. just trying to fucking mellow your brain out. I guess. So I let you know, you know, and Fripp evening star, that one's, that's a heavy one. That's the go-to right now. When you're yeah. sitting on your Pawson bench, when you're lying flat on your back on a slab of marble, a $25,000 slab of stone. Yeah. That sounds nice, man. That sounds like you're, that sounds good for you. I like that for you. It's been great here. I'm going to get it delivered in my apartment. It's going to like fall through the floor. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right. Um, that's a wrap on episode 95 of Corporate Lunch. Evan, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us and enlightening us do you feel complete do you feel like you said i don't want you to i don't want you to sign off and be like damn i forgot to say that i forgot to drop the bomb i came on to drop i think you I think dropped I a few i think um it's probably it. better actually that i cut you off before, before this gets <laughs> before this gets dangerous all right thanks for having me all right later Thanks guys for coming on. Later.